0: Empathy and compassion are wonderful aspects of caregiving that can also trip us up, especially in the era of COVID 19. Let's talk about the challenges and solutions right here on this special bonus episode of The Nurse Keith Show. Hey there, this is Nurse Keith. In these days of the COVID 19 pandemic, we're disseminating as much high quality, evidence based information and expert opinion about the situation as we can in our special bonus COVID 19 episodes. Meanwhile, we're still supporting you in your personal and professional growth. So, some of these episodes touch on COVID 19 and also go deeper into some of the aspects of our lives that are being impacted by the virus and the pandemic we want you to be well stay safe and many blessings on you your loved ones your colleagues your communities and everyone on this troubled yet beautiful planet of ours and today i am joined by friend of the pod dale larson phd dale you are here from us from santa clara california and welcome to the nurse keith show
1: thanks keith it's great to be here with you and everyone who's listening
0: Jan, thank you for reaching out to me. And I've been reading your book, The Helper's Journey, Empathy, Compassion, and the Challenge of Caring. And you and I have had a couple conversations already and become good friends very quickly and also colleagues and a mutual admiration society, we could say. And um, I really want to dig into this because in the age of COVID-19, we are really, really challenged here in terms of the caring relationship whether it's a a mother caring for a sick child or maybe her mother perhaps and the children at the same time or it's a doctor or nurse or physical therapist or counselor at the hospital or anywhere else where people are being cared for so what is the in your mind and based on your incredible work here in this book which is the second edition by the way for everyone listening what is the challenge around caring in the context of what we are all going through collectively right now?
1: Well, Keith, the way I think about it, I think about the challenge of caring as something that we all face in these caregiving roles. And the challenge, I I see it as being how to take our empathy and our compassion and put them to work and maintain them as we courageously, and I believe it is courageous what we do as helpers and as caregivers, assist people to live with hope in a world in which loss and trauma are inescapable. So to find a way to do that without burning out is really the the big challenge for us. And I think that all those challenges are heightened right now with the COVID uh, crisis.
0: Absolutely, without a doubt. And like I said earlier, just a moment ago, it's healthcare professionals and regular citizens who are not healthcare professionals who are still doing a lot of caregiving because there's a lot of sick people who are staying home but they have to be cared for because they're sick enough that they can't care for themselves but maybe not sick enough to go to the hospital. So it's a tough, tough spot for everyone. And on page 64 to 65, you have a statement about the effectiveness of a helper and how you are looking at it, the lens through which you see this. So would you mind reading that passage for us now? And I think this will really help set the stage for the rest of our conversation.
1: Okay, Uh, I wrote your effectiveness as a helper and the personal and professional growth you have in that role can be threatened if personal distress and emotional overload push you into the helper's pit. This is a metaphor I use in my writing and research. Your relationship with people you care for are only one source of this distress. Your relationships with coworkers, problems in your organization, and events in your personal life also contribute significantly to your distress quotient. To meet the challenge of caring, you must somehow find balance on your helping journey, balance between the demands you face and the resources you have to meet them, between giving to others and giving to yourself.
0: Wow. That's a powerful statement. I will have that in the show notes for people to read. And then obviously we'll have a link to the book so that people can purchase the book if they'd like to. And I encourage them to, because it's absolutely essential right now. So there's two things that came up in that quote. The first one is the distress quotient. We know about the intelligence quotient, the emotional quotient. So I I have a sense what you're going to say, but I really want to hear it from you about this notion of the distress quotient and what people are experiencing in that regard right now all around the world?
1: Yes, I think that we're all really aware of how much we're all suffering and struggling with COVID-related personal stress and loss. We have loss of freedom, loss of a sense of safety, loss of social connections and support, new demands at home, unbelievable demands at home often. Um, difficulty engaging in self-care activities that we normally would be engaged in that would, would really give us more strengths and um, resources to work with. And, you know, our appraisal processes have just gone haywire. In stress theory, there are two basic kinds of appraisals we make, and this was Dick Lazarus's work at Berkeley who was a teacher of mine when I was there in doctoral studies. Uh, you first appraise, am I okay? And the second appraisal is, okay, if I'm not okay, can I deal with it? And both of those appraisals are not really coming up with definite answers these days. You know, am I really okay? I don't know. I may be asymptomatic, uh, positive, and I may be infecting my loved ones. Am I going to develop this? Uh, am I okay in my financial situation? And, and then the second question, can I deal with it? And if you, if you get a, an answer that I, I'm not sure if I can deal with it, you have anxiety. And some of this anxiety is adaptive. We have to be somewhat socially anxious. We almost are diagnosable with cleaning doorknobs and, you know, and uh, doing all these other things, like maintaining social physical distance. But, but it's adaptive now, but hopefully someday we can kind of uh, wean ourselves from these, these kinds of practices. They're adaptive now, and we have to listen to our anxiety and, and let it guide us a little bit, but um, that we're all in a stress box that's quite extraordinary, and then you have that happening for all of the nurses and, and social workers and doctors and physical therapists and respiratory therapists who are out there and ministers who are out there doing this courageous work. That is really a lot to ask of anyone in terms of the challenge of caring.
0: Isn't it? Uh, I mean, what we are asking of ourselves and of our professionals out there is astronomical. I mean, I've been writing and talking about the the grocery store workers down the street from me at Trader Joe's or at our local food co-op and the courage it takes for them to be forward or what would you say public facing or the people at my local pharmacy who are public facing or the police officers, the first responders, the um, the mail carrier that just brought my mail to the mailbox outside my window about a minute ago, mail carriers are talking publicly about where do we go to wash our hands? Nothing's open and I'm going from house to house to house to house to house, to house for hours and hours each day. So the courage and the stress, I mean, I think delivering mail is a form of caregiving and Packing my groceries for me at Trader Joe's is a form of caregiving. And so when we say caregiving, I want certain audience members who might be wondering about the stretching, the caregiving metaphor here. It's not even a metaphor. (laughs) The reality of caregiving is that the people who are making our food that we can safely, that we can pick up for takeout that night, that's a form of caregiving too, don't you think?
1: I I could not agree with you more. I have a lot of uh, feelings about this. I, I am very moved and I, when I go into Trader Joe's uh, to shop, for example. I always say thank you to every help person who comes by me. I do indeed uh, I as well. I say thank you for keeping me alive. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like I'm in the ICU. Uh, thank you for keeping me alive. Thank you for doing this work. Thank you for coming to work. Because without you, I wouldn't have food
0: exactly
1: and I I always say that and I always thank people and it, it's just so important to do that and of course we have to do that for all of the caregivers all of the people who are helping us get through this uh, very mm-hmm. difficult crisis
0: right and we could even say that Airbnb owners who are who are cleaning and opening their Airbnb spaces to frontline healthcare workers for free, that's a form of caregiving as well because they're allowing someone who's potentially exposed to stay in their space, whether it's separate or not from them, and then creating a caring home, a nest for that person to rest. So, you know, your research and your writing you have research theory, you're what we would call clinical wisdom that you've been working on for apparently many years because you're, you have a BA from the University of Chicago, a PhD from UC Berkeley, you're a professor of counseling psych at Santa Clara University where you direct graduate studies in health psychology, you're also a Fulbright scholar, a fellow of the American Psychological Association, And a member of the International Work Group on Death, Dying, and Bereavement. So, you've been around a little bit. I'm old. I'm (laughs) old. (laughs) Well, it's all relative. My great aunt died at 112. So, old is relative. She would look at you as a spring chicken. So, if you're a champion for this type of psychological research theory and also applying it through your writing and your research, then what is the bridge we build between? this world of psychology and let's say healthcare so the nurse who's listening the doctor who's listening anyone out there who's in the healthcare space how do we bring this to them and help them ask that question am i okay and if i'm not okay am i how do i deal with not being 100 percent okay where is the bridge how do we build this for them and for us
1: that's been my real lifetime pursuit in my career is to try to build those bridges between psychology and our research and the everyday world because I was, I'm was i very much in that as a clinician. Um, I've been in my work very involved with hospices and palliative care and oncology and bone marrow transplant units and all kinds of very, very uh in the real world situations. And uh, I'm always trying to see whatever I can bring in that might be helpful. For example, back in 1979, we had a National Institute of Mental Health grant to do a, a training program for hospice workers where all the early folks came in the, in the field and, and took those uh, t- trainings that we did It was kind of a train-the-trainer model back home with them. And then um, trying to share knowledge through the Finding Our Way newspaper series. I was senior editor and contributing author for Finding Our Way, Living with Dying in America. And that was in about 180 newspapers that reached 7 million Americans we had models for how to cope with these very difficult situations whether your child is dying or you're suffering from some other grief or your parent is in a nursing home or whatever we were you were struggling with we had role models people who were dealing with it um not that it was easy but they were finding a way to to negotiate this and we provided resources and so that was another project that was trying to bridge the two worlds to bring psychology and and the kind of models for coping because, you know, we really didn't have and we still don't have great models for how we can deal with all these situations effectively. You know, when I'm thinking about um, what applies in terms of our professional helpers and clinicians that we're speaking to today, you know, as I said earlier, they have their personal stress on top of the stress at work, which is really a tremendous Amount of uh, difficult stress being thrown at them, and you know, if you just think about the situation in healthcare now, then healthcare workers of all stripes are, are have a fear of becoming infected and a fear of infecting their loved ones. That when they come home, it's not the same as coming home before COVID. Um, you know, and this is a war. But in a war, you go off to some foreign land, and you fight, and then you come home, and your family is safe at home, and and they greet you. Now, you have this kind of tension. Am I uh, possibly going to infect my own family when I come back? And that is really a painful experience. And then, of course, you have the family members who want to be very supportive of this tremendously courageous and wonderful thing that their loved one is doing, but also is very worried about them very concerned. So you have that. Obviously, when I'm talking to people and and have heard example after example of the kinds of signs of burnout in people doing the work today, the kind of exhaustion, you know, the key elements of burnout are exhaustion, uh, demoralization, and also diminished caring. But I don't see less of that diminished caring. I don't see people pulling back right now. Everyone's charging in and really wanting to be there, but definitely exhaustion because there's just too much work, too many demands, too many changes. And then the demoralization because we can't always be effective in these situations. We have you know, patients who are kind of unpredictable in their health course and they can die suddenly or nurses who can't get into the nursing home because they're restricted. You have painful ways that we're not able to express our caring, not able to deliver compassionate, person-centered care, which is what everyone wants to do. Um, you also have moral distress. You know, moral distress. It you know, it occurs when you can't do what you believe is ethically appropriate in a clinical situation. So when you can't do that, you feel frustration, guilt, maybe shame. And that can lead to burnout and and even a desire, the research shows, to leave the occupation. But think about triaging ventilators. It's hard to imagine a a more difficult kind of decision and one that even though you do what you need to do in that moment, it's going to linger with you for the rest of your life.
0: Oh my gosh. The stories we're hearing right now, whether it's television, podcasts, magazines, radio, Or from our friends, I speak with nurses all the time who are on the front lines in ICUs and ERs and med surge units all over the country, and people are reaching out to me personally with their moral distress and their ethical dilemmas. Some are saying, I feel like a pariah when I go home. I, I undress outdoors, I leave my clothes outside, I take my shoes off outside, I run to the shower, I wash like I scrub myself from head to toe, but I still feel like a pariah because it's a respiratory illness. It's also fecal-oral transmission apparently and we have to be super careful and maybe my 10-year-old daughter has lupus or rheumatoid arthritis or maybe my elderly mother lives with us in, the, in a little mother-in-law apartment right attached to us. And do I even go visit her or not? So I hear about friends who are exposed to they are waving to their parents, their only parents through the sliding glass door. And this could go on for months. And I have a friend somewhere here in the States who's a nurse, but not working clinically. She's in a, a program, educational program, but her partner has had a bone marrow transplant and his he's doing well, but his the immune system is like that of a 12 month old. So she's fiercely protecting him, but they still have to get food. So she's having ethical dilemmas left and right. Everybody is.
1: Yeah. It, I've never, it, you know, the Parkinson's back, it was the AIDS epidemic was a little different um, and had other pieces that were very disturbing, you know, the stigmatization and, and, uh, Yes. All that that went on. But there were some of the same elements and and the fears of the public. And, you know, there are consequences in terms of uh, the bereavement of of, uh, COVID survivors because they, you know, they have a kind of traumatic bereavement. I think what's being created, this novel coronavirus is creating a novel kind of bereavement or traumatic bereavement. Uh, that's, that's unique. Uh, it's, it's a special category, a uh, very sad, special category that's going to have to be addressed. And, you know, we have to address trauma before we can really work with grief very well. So you're going to have a lot of complicated grief coming out of this experience that the bereavement world and counselors and, and physicians, nurses, and everyone else, social workers are going to be dealing with for a long time.
0: It's gonna be worldwide and so universal, the trauma, and unpacking this spiritually, emotionally, psychologically is going to take a lot of person power and a lot of hours and caring and compassion. And then we have to think about the secondary trauma of all the people in your field who are going to be doing the grief and bereavement work because exactly. the, you and the people in your field have also been traumatized. So we have to look at secondary trauma, and maybe you would call it tertiary trauma. So we're going to pile secondary trauma on top of your, meaning your collective Um, colleagues in the psychological field. Yes. We're going to be piling secondary trauma on your secondary trauma.
1: It reverberates out from the epicenter.
0: Oh, it's like throwing, it's it's that old cliche of throwing a stone in the water and watching the ripples. And I've been watching it ripple. Everyone's been watching ripple through every aspect of our lives. There's nothing untouched. You know, and today I listened to the April 15th episode of The Daily, which is the New York Times daily early morning podcast. They do a deep dive into one subject for about 25 minutes every morning and they don't go into the headlines. So, April 15th, 2020 was called 24 Hours Inside a Brooklyn Hospital. And they embedded one of their journalists. In a Brooklyn hospital for 24 hours and she followed the doctors and residents and nurses and fellows around the hospital and she witnessed codes she witnessed she witnessed this one doctor who's pretty much the main attending and he he sounds so buoyant in his interactions with his colleagues because everyone is looking to him for leadership so in public out with his colleagues doing rounds in the ICUs and they have makeshift ICUs because they they don't, their ICUs are overflowing he has to remain buoyant and encouraging no matter how he feels because he has to keep these medical residents and medical students and everyone else buoyed so that they can keep working as a team and in private we know what's going on or we have a sense of what's going on hearing him speak with the reporter outside the room where they're they're all talking about a patient or the situation. And one scenario, he runs into a medical student who's like a third or fourth year medical student. And he says, shouldn't you be home? And the medical student says, yes, but my mother is in the ICU with COVID-19. And the story goes on, and I won't talk more about it, but the ethical distress that this doctor now feels like he carries a responsibility to care for the mother of this medical student who's on his team and he loves this young man. And he, you you can hear in his voice, the struggle of his compassion and empathy going out towards this young man and his mother. But he has so many other people he's carrying on his, his wide, wide shoulders. So, and I'll put a link to that episode in the show notes. So,
1: I think, I, I, think I, I saw that or I didn't pursue it. I, I did see that go across my screen.
0: It's it's painful, but very important to listen to.
1: Yeah, and, and you know, also the stories of a colleague dying. So someone you've worked beside for 20 years, and you're there, and this is a war zone. This is a war zone. And you have the, the colleague dying, and you have to kind of take that in. You know, one of the major... Um, sources of stress for all people doing end of life work there was a major study and they said well overwork is is one of the top ones that's top stressors the the second was no time to grieve well these people have no time to grieve no time to no time to integrate this loss right now they're just piling on one after the other and like that that physician or that leader you're talking about is um going to be processing this for a long time but right now they're out there fighting for the lives of the people you know we care about and um i just am in awe absolute awe at, like you are um of their uh, their courage it it's um it's remarkable mar- remarkable times
0: i'm in awe as well and i wanted to ask you a question so I've been speaking to a lot of colleagues, and this applies to me as well. I haven't worked as a clinician for three and a half to four years. I'm a self-employed nurse entrepreneur, and I support nurses, so I am making a contribution in my own way from my living room. However, I've even spoken to friends who are nurse practitioners or nurses working on the front lines, but they're not in the ER or the ICU. They're in community health centers supporting rural populations. They're in various types of roles, but they're not in the thick of it. And some of them maybe used to be ER, ICU, or PCU nurses or NICU nurses, right? So I'm already hearing from my colleagues and friends and loved ones who are out there but not like really in the in like in deep in the trenches. They're already feeling survival's survivors' guilt mm-hmm. for not being by the side of the people who are really on the front lines of the war and i always say look if we're at war like we're actually in a war Mm -hmm. there's people on the front lines who are sometimes cannon fodder we have to admit that there's people in the back in the mash unit Mm -hmm. there's people way in the back directing the action because they have to be and then there's people cooking and there's people there's clerks who are ordering supplies And there's people thousands of miles away supporting you in various ways. But the survivor's guilt I'm already hearing from my colleagues really concerns me.
1: Yeah, I think it's a natural feeling too when, when I think we're all really struggling with the fact that we're not supporting these people. It's unbelievable to me that they don't have the PPE that they need. And that just hurts so deeply, and it, I feel guilty about that, although I don't have exact control over that. Um, I can maybe donate money or do something. I also feel as a helping professional, like couldn't I be there? Maybe I should be volunteering somewhere. I'm trying to make a difference doing things like this and, and uh, you know working with my clients who are bereaved and who are struggling. And you know, trying to make a difference that way. It's interesting. One of my clients, who is a bereaved um, mother, said that you know, for her, time has been frozen, which is something you hear very often from bereaved parents. But I noted that you know, now the world is sort of frozen, and it's sort of more in sync with you. And she really thought that made sense. That this this loss that's happening for everyone makes everyone a little bit more tuned in to the whole idea of loss and our fragility. I kind of see it as a day the earth stood still moment for the, for the planet, you know, that the movie with Michael Rennie and Sam Jaffe, and it was, you know, when Klaatu comes and says, you've got to stop your aggression. But I think this, this crisis has um, hopefully the potential for all of us to kind of look at what this is revealing and and, and the, the importance of life, the fragility of life. And, you know, that's one of the things that, that might happen from it, um, you know, if we're really um, going to take it and go in a positive direction. Maya Angela said, you may not control all the events that happen to you, but you can decide not to be reduced by
0: them. Could you send me that quote for the show notes? That would be great. Now, I wanted to go back to the, the survivor's guilt for a second. What would you say if there's a clinician listening right now, nurse, doctor, PT, nurse practitioner, physician's assistant, counselor, minister, who is feeling like, I feel so guilty that I'm not deep in the muck and mire in the ER, the ICU. What do you say to that person to help them contextualize their contribution they're making from wherever they happen to be right now?
1: My first response is, you know, to be compassionate with yourself. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm talking about self-compassion here. In this situation, when we all would like to be doing more, we would like to be assisting all of our colleagues who are out there in the front lines. Uh, I, it's really hard not to feel, uh, I, I wish I could do more. It's important to recognize that what, all that we're doing in whatever realm of helping we're involved in is significant. And and to recognize that and think, you know, that may just be a little bit of help, but a little bit of help is a lot of help. And it may not be completely articulated with this particular circumstance, which is a very special circumstance. And I think that what you're saying is that the people you're talking about, they know what this is about. They know what And so their empathy is what's really, you know, causing them to be, uh, you know, a little bit stressed by this. You know, we were going to talk about, you know, how empathy can be a little bit of a a problem. Empathy empathy is when you sense the other's feelings and experiences. This is the way Carl Rogers talked about it. Sense the other person's feelings and experiences as if they were your own, but without losing the as-if quality. When you lose the as-if quality, you fall into what I call the helper's pit, or you identify with their issues. And I think that sometimes um, we you know, we have to keep a little bit of distance in terms of uh, not just jumping in and kind of looking at ourselves and being mindful and saying, okay, that's where I feel guilty. Um, what can I do with that? You know, how can I transform that? How, what does it tell me to do? What does my What does my loneliness tell me to do in terms of coping? I need to contact somebody. So we need to really listen to ourselves, be mindful and be accepting of ourselves and realize that's an expression of your goodness. The fact that you're feeling guilty, that's your caring coming forth and to be able to say, okay, that's who I am. I'm a caring person and this is really hurting me. We are all gonna suffer through this together. And I think I'm hoping that the rest of the world really gets the message from this that life is fragile and that it takes courage, a lot of courage, to confront these kinds of situations. And We need to support everyone doing it.
0: Well said that's very helpful and I continue to tell people that metaphor about the war where some people are on the front lines and some have to support the people on the front lines and if every healthcare provider was on the front lines yeah that's a good one what would happen to the rest of the system and that's where we come into this whole notion of teams and you have talked with me about and I think this is part of the work you've done in the wider world, that we have moral distress. We have regular just stress from this experience. That's just the stress of, say, being at a hospital working in a chaotic environment. There's that stress. Then you have your stress at home. Then you have your intra-team stress. Then you have your inter-team stress. Then you have the stress being handed down (laughs) the ladder from say the executive or administrative realm, because what, yeah, whatever that happens to be. So
1: roll your eyes stress. Yeah.
0: What do we do (laughs) to manage this multifaceted layers of stress that stress the team itself and then the wider team and then how those teams work together? Because in a hospital, for instance, there's a lot of different team dynamics going on, aren't there?
1: Oh, yeah. Um, I have done a lot of work with teams. I I love teams, you know, and to think of teams now in this situation, you know, the saying, uh, teams are like tea bags. They don't know how strong they are until they've been in some hot water. This is really happening. And the camaraderie you see sometimes in these little excerpts and uh, the television and And then reports and things that there's this this um, we're all in this together and I'm there for my colleagues. I want to go back to work because I I want to be there to support them, which is really beautiful. So teams are always like that, you know. I've had a lot of experience with hospice teams and um, how they're negotiating grief and loss and and all the dynamics that exist. But there's some basic principles that I kind of always think, apply, you have to, you're going to have conflict, especially when things are moving this fast when you're in the white water. So you have to see conflict as natural and unavoidable. Uh, The number one team issue that always comes up whenever you're talking to a team, and I've done studies on this, is communication, communication issues. Well, now with this everything electronic, um, we're Zooming interdisciplinary team meetings, interprofessional team meetings are being Zoomed. You don't have that human presence. That's what we're really struggling with right now. How do you facilitate really open communication in a team when you're Zooming? It's not an easy thing to do. I can't just say to you at the end of the meeting, hey, Keith, you know what you said there. Or I didn't understand what you said. Uh, didn't make sense to me. I don't know what to do with this patient. Um, you know, we could talk about it, but you're not, you don't have that kind of contact.
0: Because there's a loss of nuance. And maybe you can see the body language or facial expressions, but it's not the same as being face-to-face.
1: Yeah, it's the same, you know, with patient care. I mean, we, the, the, the phrase that is coming out now is, web, you know, your website care. You know, your, not your bedside care, but your website care.
0: Oh, my gosh. Yeah,
1: okay. what, 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 is your, what is your website care? How are you communicating empathy and compassion and presence via telehealth? That is, that's a challenge. For teams, we have to really work at it even more than we normally do to support, you know, a collaboration, inspiration, helping the team connect to the team's mission. Every team member connect to the team's mission. Ideally, you want the mission division process of the individual. That's what I write about in The Helper's Journey. What's that that process, that journey like for you as an individual helper, nurse, doctor, uh, social worker, clergy? In line with the mission division process of the team, and then the team's mission division process in alignment with the organizations. Now, when that's happening, that's not always happening, but when it does happen, that is energizing and that really is ideal. Um, you have to build caring relationships and overcome interdisciplinary myopia, uh, you know, not understanding what the other disciplines are about. Everyone contributes something. I've written uh, about transdisciplinary teams that kind of introduce that concept. And I think though that's very important where we take on different roles so you might be uh, assessing something in spiritual realm uh, even though you're not the clergy member and the clergy member is, is assessing pain you know and asking what's your pain level so some of these ways we assess things are should be very transdisciplinary in terms of the, the person doing it. And you've got to study Team, the team's process and and you've got to create an emotional climate that can lead to you know a situation in which team members can find meaning in their work and, and maybe bring forward what they value most and I think that when that's happening you have a healthy team and when you have a high functioning healthy team it makes life a lot better I like some of the practices of just stopping you know in the beginning of a team meeting and going around and just sharing one appreciation I know it sounds West Coast and kind of uh, touchy-feely, but it really works wonders. You call it uh, just uh, every month or so. I think in these times, you do it almost every week, <laughs> every hour, and just say, hey, Keith, you know, I really appreciate what you did with this patient, and, I, you know, in a, in a, a perceptive way, not just some empty compliment, mm-hmm. and, and then you take that in, and that can give you energy for the day, or it was so great the way you helped with that ventilator today with that patient because these things are going uh without being responded to although we're noticing it
0: at 100 miles an hour right the way you manage that code was amazing right exactly
1: to acknowledge Mm -hmm. it and to for me to take it in for us to take the time to give each other the appreciations that are really deserved and that only we can give to our colleagues because when they go home at night their husband or wife, unless they happen to be an ICU nurse or, you know, somebody working in this area, they can't really understand it all. So you're barking up the wrong tree if you're trying to get all your social support needs met at home. This is one thing I know for sure. Um, We have to have colleagues who can really uh, understand, you know, what we're going through. And and the, the suggestion is to schedule those times. Now that we're separated more than ever, we're not, I'm not going to run into you, Keith, if we're working on the same team in the uh, parking lot. We have to schedule it. So we have it in our you know, calendar, and now I'm going to have my half hour of talking about what the heck's going on at work, and how am I dealing with the family, and all that with somebody who can really understand. I think everyone should have these times built in, and not just leave it to chance.
0: That's a very good, that's a very good suggestion, Dale. And we touched on prior to recording this notion of strengthening resilience. So I hear you talking about team resilience, right? So we have to build resilience in the team be, be through acknowledging the unavoidability of conflict, if that's a term, um, communication the mission division process, all these things you're talking about here, right? The caring relationships. So there's resilience within the team. Then we need individual resilience at home and at work. And if we tie that into your ideas about social supports, so... I think you're, you're touching on the social support part now by saying, schedule time to speak with a colleague who understands what you're going through. So we could see that as a social support, right? Okay. So let's talk about these concepts of social support and how this all ties into building resilience because we've touched on teams. Now let's talk about individuals like a nurse, a doctor, a PT, a minister, a therapist, a rabbi who's deep in it right now. What do we tell these people to do? What are some actual things they can do?
1: Well, this is something I've I've looked at pretty extensively. I, I've done studies of what I call helper secrets. And these aren't personal kinds of traumas from childhood or anything like that, or affairs or anything like that. These are work-related experiences where we might have doubts about the efficacy of something we did, or maybe we made a medical error, or we just feel uncomfortable and inadequate, or I feel like I'm not uh, getting the job done in this situation, the imposter syndrome. We have doubts that we don't want to share because we're with all these talented other professionals. We don't don't want them to think less of us. This is a universal human experience. We all conceal different parts of ourselves that we don't feel good about. I, I have a measure the self-concealment scale that's been used in 200 empirical studies. So I think about this a lot. I think about secrets. But in terms of getting support for ourselves doing this work, I think whenever we we check inside and we say, I don't feel comfortable with this, the first thing we have to do is really attend to that. You know, we need to name it to tame it. We need to see what's there, you know, for us and that way we we get some emotional differentiation you know and you can begin to uh see what it's telling you to do when we have different kinds of concerns that the natural thing for us to do as human beings this this is ancestral plane behavior this is what we've done on ancestral planes for a long time is we disclose to someone we disclose it to someone you know, if, you, if you lost your iPhone to, uh, and you were out in public back in the pre-COVID era, uh, you would be asking everybody, do you see my iPhone? I lost my iPhone. You know, it's just a natural thing. However, if your iPhone had something out you didn't want anybody to see, then you would be concealing it. So we would end up concealing that uh, part of our, our lives. But we, we all have these experiences that we feel some shame, like you're talking about survivor guilt. Well, how do we wrestle with that? It, we need to see that as, oh, geez, I have that. And then in a supportive context, and this is what where it becomes a little difficult with, uh, you know, Zooming and things, where you, it's hard to create the kind of intimacy where I could say, you know, I had this experience. Has anybody else had this experience? And you know what? When I've led many groups for oncology nurses and for uh, physicians and other people in the field. And after a while I said, everybody's saying the same thing, but everybody thinks it's only them. They have the fallacy of uniqueness, the belief that I alone am having these difficult experiences. And there must be a gazillion of these experiences that people are having these days, like in such novel, not to use that term uh, that way, but you have difficult things that are happening. I'm grieving. I'm, I don't, I don't know if it's okay to, for me to talk about that, for me to share my distress, because people will think less of me. I have to be the courageous warrior. I can't share with my family, it's too much. I can't describe this war scene when I go home. I can't tell them how anxious I am about infecting them because that will scare them more. So there are a lot of ways that we could be concealing, for, for not for bad reasons, but for quite reasonable reasons, but at the same time, we do need to disclose this to someone to see that other people are having this experience. It's not me. And we get away from self-blame and we get away from feeling less good about ourselves. And we also get that human connection with someone else. And you know, that's where it's sometimes really important to have a true confidant like a counselor or someone who you can, hey, here's my hour. I can just go wherever I go and I don't have to worry about anybody else finding out about this. So I'm hoping that our counseling world really, um, you know, is available to people for people who need that. Not that everyone needs counseling, but we need an open ear. You know, that's one component of social support, the big ear you need. You need somebody you can always talk to.
0: Right. And I'm a big supporter and advocate. And I would say evangelist for counseling and psychotherapy. And I'm very transparent here on the show and in, my, sometimes in my social media postings and also my writings that I struggle with depression. I've struggled with PTSD, with a diagnosis. And I've been in therapy, you know, the majority of the last 35 years with different therapists wow. over the years. And I'm very open about that because yep. I want to normalize it. And I'm not one, I don't have a helper secret that I'm this perfect Wonderful nurse entrepreneur whose life is great and who doesn't have any problems. So, I want people to know that I struggle as well. And I have a big ear. I have somebody I go to see every Thursday. That's, that's really I saw wonderful. him this morning, and um, his name is Scott, and he's amazing. And I don't know what I would do without that place where I go, where I don't conceal my self doubts, right? Where I lay it all on the table for him to help me dissect.
1: Yeah, I'm really happy for you that you're doing that. That's just excellent. I, I think that uh, it's invaluable. You know, you mentioned perfectionism, too. You saying I'm not perfectionistic. The perfectionism gets you in a lot of trouble. And we know that uh, our colleagues our field, in our field are more perfectionistic than the average person off the street. And it, it is a problem, and then it leads to concealment. And it leads to us not talking about this because we thought, well, there's something wrong with us. I'm not
0: it's shame. Shame.
1: There's shame is at the center of it all. Shame is the glue that keeps things secret. So
0: that's a good one. Shame is the glue that keeps things secret. Okay.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Wow. And so you know, the, the, I mean, there are some secrets that, um, you know, we possess there are other secrets that possess us and that, really trouble us so not all secrets are a problem no but some of them are distressing and some of them are work related that we do need to talk about because this is trauma we're we are you know experiencing in in some of these situations real trauma and real trauma needs to be talked about needs to be processed and it can be processed and that's the good news you know one of the things that that really comes out of the the stress literature now there's growing research and clinical wisdom that tells us we can exert a lot of control over stress and its effect on effects on us and we can and we can ask able to arrest personal and professional growth from it. So, you know, it it's really good when we can confront these experiences and not try to suppress them and keep them out of our mind because that doesn't work. There's an ironic rebound effect that when you try to suppress something, it comes back <laughs> to haunt you. And
0: what you resist persists.
1: <laughs> what you resist persists, exactly. And and Dan Wegner at Harvard did the white bear studies where he said to people, don't think about a white bear. Just don't think about a white bear. And of course they couldn't stop themselves from thinking about a white bear. So when these the, we have these troubling experiences, we have to get out of that echo chamber, and, and, and then voice it, write it. Writing things is very helpful. There's a whole series of studies, the experimental disclosure paradigm that Jamie Pennebaker began and led to all the journaling that's happening. We know that this writing cure really does work, at least in this time when you don't have time to do much else. Stop and keep a journal because in 20 years, when people are looking back at this whole period in our history, they will want to know what was it like for you, just like oh my we'd gosh. like to know what happened in World War II and what happened in 1918. This is a, a pivotal time in our history, a juncture in our history where everything we do is going to, um, you know, go into the future in positive ways or less good ways. These are the kinds of choices we're making.
0: You're so right. And, you know... <laughs> the world is going through a massive trauma and I keep talking over and over again. Some of my listeners might be like, Oh, please don't mention it again. But I keep talking about the grieving process brought through by Elizabeth Kubler ross back in the sixties and seventies. And it's, it's not a, it's not a linear process. And, Everybody in the world, even entire communities or nations, are involved in sort of a collective grieving process. So it goes from the micro, like my grieving, out to my community in Santa Fe, New Mexico, the Southwest, the United States, and it goes bigger and bigger until we have a global grieving process. And, you know, memoirs are very popular. A lot of people write memoirs. And There's going to be a lot of memoirs coming out of this time, and I think those memoirs are going to be very important first-person accounts, not of factual things that happen necessarily. Some of it will be factual because we love stories, but I think a lot of it is going to need to be reflective writing, digging deep into our psyches, into our helper's secrets and the self-doubts and the pain and the grief so that as a society, a, a global society, we can process this because I think this is going to take years to process. And I'm afraid to say this, but I've said it before. Some epidemiologists I'm following and public health officials I'm following are saying that COVID-19 may not be the big one we've been talking about all these years in the epidemiological and public health worlds and that the big, this may be a dress rehearsal Or this might be the big one, but like Anthony Fauci has said, Dr. Anthony Fauci, who advises the president, and he said of the Allergy and Immunology um, Institute, I can't remember the exact name of the institute, but he's worked with, I think, five presidents in a row. And he said he always knows when an administration begins, there is going to be a public health crisis faced by that administration. It's inevitable. So Mm -hmm. this could be the big one. I really hope this is the big one, but we don't Mm -hmm. know. So we need to learn from this. Of course, you know, my brother is Mm -hmm. head of COVID-19 research at the Vice Institute at Harvard, and he is deep in it right now. He's not a bench scientist. He's directing all the research at the Vice Institute, and he's been there just a couple months. He was just hired before this exploded. He's deep in it. And other people are deep in it. So we need, we have research, and there's going to be incredible scientific movement in terms of uh-huh. pandemics, viral response, it's set yeah. pandemic response. However, we need movement in the psychological realm, your realm, and your work. You know, as we wind down, I just want to say your work with this book, The Helper's Journey, Empathy, Compassion, and the Challenge of Caring. This is really important stuff. And that's one reason when you reached out to me, I think on LinkedIn, I'm not sure, I thought, oh my God, I've got to have this guy on my show. And then when you and I talked by phone about a month ago, there was no way we couldn't have this conversation. And we're going to have to have more conversations because your work around social supports, resilience, teams, trauma, this whole empathic response is so important. And I think. The work that you and your fellow colleagues are doing right now, I think, is some of the most important work we're going to need moving forward from here, aside from the scientific piece, right, like the antiviral drugs being developed. We're, we're working on a vaccine, but you and your yeah. colleagues, in a way, you can yeah. vaccinate us with other things, like hope, for instance, right?
1: Oh, that's. I love that idea. I think that is the key. You know, that's the challenge, the ultimate challenge of caring. It's interesting your brother's doing that. My sister is at a pharmaceutical uh, consulting group, a big, big group, um, and she's talking to the Gates group, and uh, there are like 400 clinical trials for a therapeutic kind of response going on right now. So there's hope there in in the medical realm, and I think that if we can, you know, learn from this, if we can take this and, and learn from it, um, then we can really, truly have a more hopeful future. It's interesting that parallel to this is the whole uh, experience of environmental grief. So are we learning from that? Are we learning our lessons? You know, We are having experiences which are telling us we need to change things. We're seeing all the fault lines in our Healthcare and in our society and and we we need really need to address these you know collectively like as you're saying internationally this isn't just a local thing it's not new rochelle new york it's not you know santa clara county where i live which is an epicenter it's uh all over the world it's the entire world and that's why i think the day the earth stood still this is becoming you know maybe the year that the earth stood still and uh can we can we mobilize ourselves? Can we can we see what the lessons are? And I think that's always the the, the experience in grief and loss. You know, how, how do we transform grief and loss when we're bereaved? You know, that's the super challenge for every bereaved person. We're all bereaved now of so much in a in a, a different way. It's not all uh, death related, although there's way too much of that right now. But it's non-death related losses that are really teaching us about um, you know, the necessary things we need to do to create a healthier planet, a healthier uh, world. And it's exciting, exciting time in that way. I hope that we learn from this. And uh, I also, I want to do everything I can to support the people who are on those front lines and also the people you've mentioned. I thought it was beautiful that you really brought attention to everyone who's keeping us going and the, the risks they're taking. And uh, you know, this is reminding me to, to go out and give a big thank you to every delivery person, <laughs> every person who's um, you know, making a contribution.
0: Absolutely, I thank everyone. I give thumbs up to the UPS drivers driving past me on the street. I wave to people when I'm biking around town. I've been telling people in the little shops that are still open that I use, like the place where my mailbox is down the street. I told them, Mary and I are buying you a huge cake and flowers when this is all over. And we can't do it yet, but we will. So get get ready for a huge cake. The
1: bakery place isn't open right now, but as soon as it opens,
0: we'll get it Exactly. So, you know, Dale, thank you for this. I would call this a vaccination of hope because if we can help people be more resilient, and cope and have stronger teams and be stronger within themselves and maybe divulge some of their helper secrets. So they're not, there holding them so close and hurting themselves with their imposter syndrome and their shame and their, their, their um, embarrassment at not being on the front lines. So Heath,
1: I'm going to add to, if I can interrupt and please. say also to share the joys the joys to share the successes because a lot of times people don't share those because oh i, I don't want to be like full of myself or something but you know what i was with this patient and and she shared this with me and it mm-hmm. touched me so profoundly and i was able to be there and i was so glad that i was able to make this work somehow you know with mm-hmm. this new situation and we need to share those kind of experiences too. We need to celebrate with each other. We all need to celebrate the good moments and, and, and really um, recognize those and feel a lot of gratitude for what Absolutely, we do have, that we have, that we still have each other, those of us who have survived and are continuing on.
0: We do indeed. And I would love you and anyone listening to go to nursekeith.com forward slash play and that is a recent, very recent episode of the Nurse Key Show that launched today on the 16th of April oh. with my friend, Caroline Cardenas, who is an oncology nurse mm-hmm. who wrote her master's thesis on the use of hula hooping and hoop dancing for the prevention of burnout and compassion fatigue in nurses. And she's now working on her dissertation on the power of play for healing burnout and compassion fatigue in healthcare professionals.
1: Uh, I'm a big believer in the expressive arts. Elizabeth kubler Roth was also
0: Yes. Exactly. So if you go listen to that episode, you'll hear how Caroline talks about the power of play and how important joy, cultivating joy is even amidst chaos. And challenge so dale thank you so much for being here my best to your wonderful wife whose poetry and art is incredible thank you for sending me her book as well and people can find you at dale and on instagram you are dale g larson and on twitter you are dale g larson and linkedin we can also find you so all the links to that will be in the show notes and your wife's website with her art is
1: Deborah Kennedy and
0: it's D E B
1: O R A H Kennedy as in John, John Kennedy art A R T.com.
0: We will have that in the show notes as well.
1: Oh, thank you so much.
0: Deborah Kennedy art.
1: Well, we're all, we're all working for, um, toward a healthy world.
0: Thank you. Well, thank, thank her for me for sewing masks for people out there who need them. And thank you for the great work you do. And I will have you back because this has been very, very rich.
1: Thank you, Keith. I really appreciate what you do. Thank you for what you do.
0: Well, there you have it. Thanks for listening to this special COVID-19 bonus episode of The Nurse Keith Show. There will be many more to come. And remember the show notes for this episode to read all about Dale, his wife, and Dale's work. We're looking at art, resilience, compassion, empathy, the challenge of caring, and the helper's journey. To read all about the book, to order the book, and find Dale and connect with him, go to nursekeith.com forward slash empathy. I hope you feel uplifted and empowered from this episode, and I encourage you to take inspired action in any way you feel moved in order to help yourself and others keep your friends, family, communities, and loved ones informed, calmed, and educated. The Nurse Keith Show is adroitly produced by Rob Johnston of 520R Podcasting, and I thank Mark Speesen, our stalwart social media ringmaster, who helps me spread the word through our many online platforms stay safe stay informed and be the nurse and healthcare professional who does the right thing in the face of COVID-19 for yourself and others this is Nurse Keith saying adios till next time from beautiful Santa Fe New Mexico